James chapter 4 and verse 1, we'll read through verse 6. He says, What is the source of the wars and the fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly, so that you may spend it on your desires for pleasure. Adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility to Yahweh? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes Yahweh's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason, the scripture says, that the spirit he has caused to live in us yearns jealously? But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, Elohim resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As we start into the fourth chapter today, I would like to remind you that once again, this letter is a series of tests meant to challenge you and to cause you to examine your life and your very soul to see if you comply with Yahweh and what he has designed for your life to be like. In the section of scripture that we just read, James is dealing with one of the greatest downfalls of mankind, and that's the love of the world. In verse 4, he calls the church to whom he is talking adulteresses, and he accuses them of being worldly. He also tells them in the latter part of of verse 4 that whosoever wants to be be a friend to the world is Yahweh's enemy. Notice he doesn't say that Yahweh is our enemy, but rather that we are Yahweh's enemy. Well, this is another indication or indicator of true saving faith. Because to be a friend of the world is what? It's an enemy of Yahweh. If you haven't noticed, as James goes through his epistle, he often comes back to the same points that he's made earlier or at a previous moment in his letter. If you think back in chapter 1 and verse 27, he already mentions worldliness. He says that pure and undefiled religion is to look after orphans and widows. And then right after that, it says, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I'm going to go back through verses 1 through 6 in a minute. And we'll go through all, all six verses before I get done. But before I do, I want to focus on verse 4. And I want to talk a little bit about what it means to be a friend of the world. Because friendship with the world is the common theme of this group of verses, verses 1 through 6. And it's the essence of the test that James is putting in front of us here. Verses 1, 2, and 3, they kind of lead off the previous chapter by tying the subject of of wisdom into it. And then verses 5 and 6, they kind of conclude the major reason for a love of the world. But the problem at hand and the test that we need to be checking ourselves with is found in verse 4. It says, do you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards Elohim? Okay, two things. First, the word friendship here in the Greek is the word philia. And it means to have a common interest, a common concerns, a sharing of experiences, or a common deeply felt affection. It's used about 29 times in the New Testament. And it basically means to have an emotional bonding. If you're familiar with John chapter 3, I don't know if you are or not, but starting in verse 27, John the Baptist has has been baptizing people in the Jordan River. And and one of John's disciples, a student, or they're, have, they're having a little debate about, uh, about purification. And so they come up to John the Baptist, and they're both, John the Baptist and the Messiah are baptizing in two separate places. And they ask, they ask John, they say, look, the man that you, that you told us about, the man that you baptized, he's over here baptizing, and the people are just flocking to him. And John says this to him. He says, no one can receive a single thing 
unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said. In other words, you can say that I said this. I told you this. I am not the Messiah, but I have sent. I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. He's talking about Christ. He who has the bride is the groom. The one that's baptizing the most of people, most of the people, he's baptizing the bride, and that is the groom. But the groom's friend, and he's uh, referencing himself, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's saying that, that the Messiah must be exalted. I must be brought low so that he shines and that I don't. But he says before that, he, he kind of paints a picture of a groomsman or a best man in a wedding. When he says, he who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend, who is John the Baptist, who stands by and listens for him, he rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. The word friend here comes from the same Greek wording. It's not, it's not the exact same word, but it's the same word group. And so, so my point is to, to paint kind of a picture of what the relationship between John the Baptist and Yeshua. Matthew's been teaching a lot in the book of Luke, and he's covering John the Baptist right now, and their relationship is so is so tight and so tight-knitted. That's the, that's the exact same word that James used here, and James uses here in verse 4 in the fourth chapter of James when he says, if you're a friend with the world, if you have a friendship like John the Baptist and the Messiah has, you're an enemy with the Almighty. If you love the world that way, you're an enemy with the Almighty. And secondly, the word hostility that is used here in the Greek is the word ektra, and it means to have a reason for opposition, enmity, or just a blatant hatred for something. So to put it in today's lingo and to bring out the seriousness of this statement, it could be read like this. Do you know or are you aware that having an emotional attachment attachment to the thing of, things of the world is like showing blatant hatred towards Yahweh? If you love the world like John the Baptist loved the Messiah, you hate Yahweh. That's a pretty serious statement. You might say, well, that's not me. I don't love the world, but let's be honest. Does any part of the world have a hold on your life to the point that you're, in a, you're emotionally attached to it? Probably everyone in here can relate to being emotionally attached to something in the world. I, I know I can. I, I have several things I've probably... I'm probably emotionally attached to that are that are worldly. Shouldn't be, shouldn't be, because it says I have a blatant hatred for Yahweh. If that's the case, but I can, if I don't have an emotional attachment, I'm probably flirting with it, you know, and that's dangerous enough. And the word here, it comes from the Greek word cosmos. It can mean many things. It can mean the galaxy. It can mean uh, the world in relationship to Jerusalem. It can mean, you know, just a just a local region. It can mean many other things, and in this case, I think it's talking about a Satan-directed, man-centered system that is, that's hostile to Yahweh. And all that he has ordained and sanctioned, that's, that's the world that he's talking about. All that is hostile to Yahweh, that's the world that James has in mind. Now, the Bible says that anybody who is a friend of the world is an enemy to Yahweh. Well, let's see what Yahweh's enemies look like. The Bible's full of it. If you have your Bibles and you want to, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to go to several verses during this teaching. Philippians 3 and verses 18 through 20, starting in verse 18. For I have often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. 
Their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Yeshua himself. Paul's telling them here, look, he's trying to tell them, he says with tears in his eyes, I tell you in tears that the end, their end, the people that love worldly things, their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory that they have now, that's their shame. Turn to uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. It says this, it says, For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to Yahweh because it does not submit itself to Yahweh's law, for it is unable to do so. Those whose lives are in the flesh are unable to please the Almighty. He's saying that if you reject Yahweh's law, that you're hostile to Yahweh. You hate him. You hate him and he hates you. You reject Yahweh's law, he hates you. That's hostility to Yahweh. He can't stand you. You, you go against the very thing that he calls pure and perfect. And, and, he, and he hates you. It's, it's, a, it's, it's really that serious of a word. When he says that you're his enemy, he hates you. So who are the enemies of Yahweh? Those who are focused on worldly things. Those who have their mind set on the flesh. They reject his word, turn from his ways, laugh at his instruction. They hate his son. They do all these things because their focus is on worldly things and their own flesh, their own desires. These examples, my friends, are not examples of true believers. True believers don't have the same characteristics as the enemies of Yahweh. True believers are friends of Yahweh. And I think that everybody in here would want to be his friend. True believers don't have the characteristics of enemies. Nowhere in the scripture will you find that Yahweh loves his enemy. Nowhere in the scriptures will you find a believer being called Yahweh's enemy. He doesn't call them his enemies. These are believers. They're my enemies. That wording is not found in the scripture. Remember James chapter 2. We want to be his friend. James chapter 2 and verse 23. It says that Abraham believed Yahweh and he was called his friend. And in John chapter 15 verses 13 through 15, it says no one has greater love than this that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That's what Christ tells them. He says, I don't call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master's doing. You've graduated from, from being a slave, and now you're called my friends. You weren't once were slaves, but now you're my friends. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. Notice the difference between the slave and the friend. To be a friend to, of the master is to do what? Do what he commands. Everything is... Everything that he has heard from the Father, that's what he commands us to do. So I say all this to show you that the ones who love him long to do his will. We fear him, but even though we stumble from time to time, it's our greatest desire to please our Father and to speak and and to repent of our wrongdoing. And yes, we do stumble. Believers do stumble. They fall into the ways of the world. We struggle with sin because we are in the world. Like I told you last time, Yahweh gives a creature a new heart. He He incarcerates it in an old body. And that old body is still full of, the, it's, it's fleshly. And it lives in a worldly environment. And it, and it strives to do things. The body strives to do things that are worldly. It's turned on by worldly desires. It looks at worldly things and it, and it strives to do that. But that heart that's inside is pure. It's made new. And it is starting to turn the outside of the body into something pure just like it is. Consider Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. No one can be a slave of two masters since either he will hate one 
and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. We can't serve the two. Or how about 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12? We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit from Elohim. And last but not least, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I mean chapter 6 and verse 14 through 16, I'm going to read it to you. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 16, it says, Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does Elohim's sanctuary have with idols? For we are all the sanctuary of the living mighty one. And the mighty one said, I will dwell among them and walk among them. And I will be their mighty one. And they will be my people. So what Paul's saying here is that we should be so utterly distinct from the world as believers that Ray Charles could see it. We should look so different than everybody else. We should, we should shine like bright diamonds. We should look so much different than the world that we live in. If any of you have experienced a new life, then you've also experienced death. Anybody in here, if they've, if they've, been, if they've been changed, if they've been made a new creature, they've also experienced death. In order for a new creature to be born, an old one must die. Paul also says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 that he will never boast in himself just in the cross of Yeshua because it's through him that the world was crucified to Paul. You have to be dead to the world. And Paul was crucified to the world. In other words, the creature must become dead to the world and alive to Yeshua. Oh, and of course, 1 John chapter 2, and verse 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things that belong to it. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but is from the world. And verse 17, And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does Yahweh's will, he will remain forever. Notice the lover of the world will pass away, but not the one, the one that does Yahweh's will, he remains forever. The one who practices righteousness will remain. This is an eternal remaining. We're not talking about an earthly remaining. Now I know that was a lot of scripture, and we went, you know that we went to, but, but I hope you're catching the point and see that friendship with the world is hostility to Yahweh. That you're truly an enemy when you're a friend of the world. True believers don't love the things of the world. If we're new creatures, we ought to act as if we're new. We ought to look different. We ought to smell different, talk different. Romans 12.2 says, Be ye not conformed to the world, but rather be transformed. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind on what is above and not what's on the earth. I don't know where it's at, but in the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it talks about storing up treasures in heaven so that your heart might be there also. Don't invest in things of the earth where thieves break in and steal and moth, you know, chew away and rust destroy. In other words, the things of the world should not be our focus. It should not be what we love. Instead, we should be transformed and focused on the things of above. See, I'm not talking about stumbling and sin from time to time. I'm talking about a desire that is stimulated from the heart. Is the focus of your heart on the things of the world. A true believer can't love the world because that means he hates Yahweh. Remember what James says in chapter 3 and verse 11. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? The question is rhetorical and the answer is no. You can't get bitter and sweet water from the same opening. A true believer can't focus on worldly things and spiritual things too. So James is telling us 
that we can't serve two masters. Yeshua told us you can't serve two masters. Paul told us you can't serve two masters. So the conclusion of verse 4 is that you can't serve two masters. The only thing you get from straddling a fence is a sore tail. I learned that from Matthew. That's what you get. You can't be on both sides at the same time, so get on one side. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he says, Anyone who is not with me is against me. We can't serve two masters. So I say all this to conclude that James must have had in mind a false convert with dead faith here, and that is the lover of the world in verse 4. We're not talking about a true believer in verse 4. We're talking about somebody that may even profess to be a Christian, but they're a false convert. These people right here in verse 4, they're not true believers. They're lovers of the world. He calls them adulteresses. I just want you to see the context of, the, of, the, of this group of verses before we go back. Now we'll start back in verse 1, and uh, we'll go all the way through it. So let's read verse 1. James 4 and verse 1, it says, What is the source of the wars and the fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? James asked his readers, Why the wars among you? Where do they come from? Don't they come from the cravings within you? In other words, the wars and fights amongst the brothers are driven by the wars that are individual, individually internal. He harkens back to what we studied last time. I taught in chapter 3 about heavenly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. Remember the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without favoritism and hypocrisy. That's right at the end of the chapter 3, so the thought continues right into chapter 4. We don't have chapters and verses when when, uh, when James is writing this. So it, the thought continues, and James is pointing, that selfish, pointing out that selfish envy and worldly desires are what's causing the battles inside the assembly. He's not talking about internal. He's talking about internal and external. In verse 4, when it says, what is the source of the wars that, and the fights among you? He's talking about among you as a group of believers. And then it says, don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? He's talking about it. It's stirred up from inside each individual person, and that's causing the chaos in the group. James says, you have conflict on the inside, which is driven by your love for the world, which emanates to the outside and then causes conflict with everyone else. Verse 2, you desire and you do not have. You murder and you covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You do not have because you do not ask. Now keep wisdom from above, verse 17, verse 17 in chapter 3. Keep that in mind because that's what's in view here in verse 2 of the fourth chapter. James says, you desire and you do not have. What do they desire that they don't have? They don't have the heavenly insight. That's what they're desiring. They don't have gentleness. They don't have good fruits. They don't have righteousness, joy, etc. He says, you murder and you covet these things and yet you still don't have them. You fight and you war amongst yourselves, and yet you still don't have them. See, James is addressing people who desire the gifts that come with heavenly wisdom. They desire the gifts of Yahweh, joy, peace, happiness, but they're looking for these things through their love for the world instead of their love for Yahweh. They really don't want Yahweh. They just want that Yahweh gifts. See, if you tell everybody, if you ask anybody in the world, I, I don't, I don't really agree with what I'm fixing to say, but if you ask anybody in the world, do you want to go to heaven? They say, oh, absolutely, I'm going. I'm going, I'm going to walk the streets of gold. I'm going, to, I'm going to have it easy. I'm going to be made new. I'm not going to have cancer. My eyesight's going to be made better. And all that stuff is true, in a sense. 
But that's what they want. You ask them if they want to keep the Sabbath, and they say, well, I don't know about all that. Man, it sounds like a bunch of law to me. I, you know, I can't, uh, I can't do that. That's what these people have a problem with right here. They want what Yahweh has to offer. They want the joy, the peace, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. They want the heavenly insight. They want the wisdom, but they don't want to do anything to get it. And they don't want to, they don't want to sell out the Yahweh to obtain it. So they lust and search in vain for these things that they cannot have. And it frustrates them to the point to where they're in conflict with others. Now let's think about it. Don't we still have wars? We have wars going on in the church today. It's no different. Just like they did in those days, conflict inside the church is a great reality. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when Paul tells the people in Corinth that he shouldn't even speak to them because they were fleshly. He said that they were babes in Christ and their envy and their strife proved them to be fleshly. That they were broken up into factions. One would say, I'm with Paul, and the other one would say, I'm with Apollos. So Paul had to straighten them out. What did he tell them? He says, we're all servants. For I plant and Apollos waters. See, contention was among the brethren then too. What about 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 20? Paul says, for I fear that when I come to find you, I fear that when I come to find you to be what I want, that you won't be what I want. And I may not be found by you to be what you want. There may be quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. See, the church then was slapped full of it too, just like it is today. Think about all the gossiping that goes on around in the churches today. Think about the contention that is just between the Lunar Sabbatarians and the Yahweh people. Somebody argue about how to pronounce Yahweh's name. Or how about those who think of you as a disgrace because you tried to uphold the law of Yahweh? They think that you're trampling the blood of Christ. This is this is very familiar to me. I come out of a church that thinks that thinks we're a, that we we've denied the Messiah because we believe in keeping the law. These are prime examples of prime examples of wars among us. James says, "Why are these wars?" among you. Why are they there? Why? Because of the lack of heavenly wisdom and too much worldly pride and selfish ambition. That's why they're there. The last part of verse 2 says, you do not have because you don't ask. Remember remember in chapter 1 and verse 5, James says, if you lack wisdom, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask Yahweh. But the problem is, these people are friends of the world and enemies of Yahweh. They're not seeking heavenly wisdom. They're seeking selfish pleasures through their love of the world. That's what they're doing. Verse 3. It says, You ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly, so that you may spend it on your desires for pleasure. Now right here it seems like James just contradicted himself. That's what it sounds like. Verse 2 said, You have not because you ask not. But verse 3 says, You ask, but you don't receive. Sounds like a contradiction. Well, it's not really a contradiction. In verse 2, they... They don't ask at all for the heavenly wisdom they need. And in verse 3, they're asking, but they're asking for the wrong reasons. They have the wrong motives. They're asking for the gifts, but only to consume them on their lust and their own pleasures and their desires. Remember, everybody wants true joy, true happiness, true true, um, satisfaction, the things that come with the heavenly wisdom. That's what they they didn't ask for in verse 2. But in verse 3, after they figure out that they can't obtain these things with their worldly resources, they ask for it, but they don't receive it because they didn't ask on his terms, for his glory. That's how it is for the people who love the world. They live for the thrill. They don't live their life with a desire and a longing to please Yahweh, but rather they only want to please themselves and their own desires. 
You are an enemy of Yahweh if you're seeking worldly things. And it doesn't matter how much you ask for them, you won't be giving them because you'll just waste the gifts on your own worldly lust. It's a waste of time. You beg for something you'll never get. I'm reminded of Simon in Acts chapter 8. He wanted the gifts that Peter had. This man claimed to be a believer. But Acts chapter 8, verse 9, we'll start in verse 9 and go through 24. It says, A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and astounded the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had astounded them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Yeshua, both men and women were baptized. Before I go any further, notice what uh, what Paul proclaims. He proclaims the good news. He proclaims the gospel. And what is the gospel message made of? The kingdom. And after they believed Philip, what were they? What was done to them? They were baptized. Then it says, then even Simon himself believed. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he went around constantly with Philip and was astounded as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. This man confesses to be a Christian. He believes. He believes. Verse 14, it says, When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed Yahweh's message, they sent Peter and John to them. And after they went down there, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of Yeshua. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power too, so that, I, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought the gift of the Almighty could be obtained with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before the Almighty. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to Yahweh that the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Please pray to Yahweh for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Then after they had testified and spoken the message of Yahweh, they traveled back to Jerusalem, evangelizing many villages of the Samaritans. Number one, Simon says that he believed. And then he asked for gifts, just like these people right here want. In James chapter 4, he's, they're asking for these things. They want these things. They want the heavenly insight. They want all these things. Simon wanted them, wanted them so bad, and he's seen Peter and John doing these miracles. They're laying the laying hands on people and they were receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and he says, hey, give it to me, give it to me, I've got to have it, I've got to have the gift from above. And he says, how much money can I give you? And Peter says, you'll perish with your money. You'll perish with your money, you're trying to buy something that's holy and righteous. You don't want, you don't want what's holy and righteous. You want, a, you, want a, you want some kind of self-satisfaction of being able to lay your hands on somebody and somebody say, oh, Simon touched me and I've been made new. You want to be lifted up in the sight of men and because of that, he'll take everything with you. He said, you'll perish with the money that you have. And Simon says, please, please pray for me that this don't happen to me. Well, it doesn't say that Peter or John ever prayed for him. It says they just went on and kept uh, kept preaching. I don't know if they prayed for him or not, but I would hate for, for one of the apostles to look at me and say, you'll perish with your money. 
These are powerful men. Powerful men that were sold out to Yahweh and His Son and His church. To conclude, verses 1 through 3, James is telling us because of the lack of heavenly wisdom within you, you fight in war. These cravings for these gifts that only Yahweh can provide is what is causing you to be at each other's throats. The reason you don't have is because you don't seek Yahweh on His own terms to receive them. And when you do ask, all you have in mind is self-satisfaction and a desire to please your own flesh, and therefore you won't receive anything from above. Now that brings us back to verse 4 where we started. Let's read it again. Verse 4, it says, Adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards the Almighty? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes Yahweh's enemy. Now James calls them adulteresses, and rightly so, he calls them adulteresses. The word right here, adulteresses, in some Bibles and translations, it'll be translated adulterers. And the reason it's translated adulterers is not a correct reason, but they do it to keep from this being posed, I think, at the feminine sex. Okay, So they call them adulterers to include men and women. But if you understand Hebrew thought, James is speaking to a Hebrew audience. He's not picking on the Israelite women. He's kind of making a play on words of things that, that were given all throughout the prophets. They understood the prophets when they called them an adulterous nation. It wasn't saying that all the women were bad in Israel. What he's saying is you're Yahweh's bride, you're a woman. You're a woman to Yahweh, and therefore you're adulteresses. You love the world, just like in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2. He says, you remember he tells Hosea, go and marry Gomer, the prostitute. And so that you can show them that, look, you're acting like a harlot. You're going out after the world, all these things. Because you're acting like a harlot, I'm going to call you an adulteress. You're an adulterous woman. James is doing the same thing here. The correct translation should be adulteresses, not adulterers. It means he's saying that. To get his point across, look, you're playing the harlot church. You're not doing what Yahweh's bride is supposed to be. You're an unfaithful bride to Almighty Yahweh. Because they have become lovers of the world and not the things of Yahweh, he goes on to point out that as long as they are lovers of the world, they will be in hostility with Yahweh. So if that's what you desire, know that you're Yahweh's enemy. If you, if you desire the things of the world, just know that Yahweh hates you. If, if, you want, if you want to participate in worldly things, and I'm, not, and I'm not talking about going out to eat in a restaurant, I don't mean stuff like that, but if, you, if your desire is the lust of the eyes, the pride of one's lifestyle, things like that, if you desire those things, know that Yahweh hates you. That's just the way it is. To be a friend of the world is the enemy of Yahweh. You'll be in conflict with Him, you'll be in conflict with others, and you'll be in conflict with Yahweh. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in conflict with Yahweh. I don't want to be an enemy of Yahweh. The Bible says he reserves wrath for his enemies. In Psalms chapter 68 and verse 21, it says Yahweh crushes the head of his enemies. To be an enemy with Yahweh is a frightening thing. It's a fearful thing, like Jerry would say. That's a fearful thing, brother. Let's read verse 5. Or do you think it's without reason, the Scripture says, that the spirit he has caused to live in us yearns jealousy? Okay, notice where it says, the Scripture says. It says, the Scripture says, and right after that it says, that the Spirit He has caused to live in us yearns jealousy. Well, here's a newsflash for you. The Scripture does not say that. Nowhere. It doesn't say the words that the Spirit He has caused to live in us yearns jealousy. 
Scripture doesn't say that anywhere. You'd search in vain to find that statement. The spirit that is caused to live in us yearns jealousy. That statement's not in the Scriptures. Several different commentaries make mention of various verses throughout Scripture that it might be referring to or that might be gleaned from. But as far as a direct quote, it's not in there. I believe what he's referring to is the Scripture as a whole. The Scripture as a whole, in other words, the Scripture testifies that human nature tends to be envious or jealous. The whole Scripture teaches that. It is bent on evil. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So Scripture teaches that the spirit of man yearns jealousy. That word spirit right there in my Bible is capitalized, capital S, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's just biased. There's no reason. Number one, the, the word spirit comes from the Greek word pneuma. It's not masculine or feminine. It can't be in reference, or it could, I guess it could be. I won't say it can't be. It could be in reference to, to the spirit of Yahweh, but it's not in this case. I don't believe anyway, I'll, I'll state it, I don't believe that it's in reference to the spirit of Yahweh. It's talking about a, a spirit that resides in every man. The spirit of every man yearns jealousy, jealousy. And it doesn't teach that it doesn't teach that for nothing. This is what James says, it doesn't teach that for nothing. The whole Bible teaches that our spirit is jealous, wanting the things of the world, and the Bible's not teaching that for nothing. It's it's not doing that in vain. There's a reason behind it. The purpose of scripture scripture teaching the nature of man's spirit is to point us to where we are in Yahweh's sight and why we need a savior. So James says, You who are friends of the world, do you think it's without reason? that the scripture says the spirit that he has caused to live in us yearns jealously. In other words, don't you know that the scripture testifies that this is how people live, full of lust and envy, and the Bible slap full of it. Don't you know that the scripture teaches if you are the person in verse 4 that you don't belong to Yahweh, that you're his enemy because of your evil spirit? Let's read verse 6. Verse 6 says, But he gives greater grace, Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here, James is being merciful. Remember, he's talking to scattered Israelite brothers. And I'm not talking about believing brothers necessarily. I'm talking about scattered Israelite brothers. People, lineage brothers. Several times he calls them brother, and in verse 19 of the first chapter, he calls them my dearly loved brothers. So James reiterates Yahweh's patience and love for his children when he says, but he gives a greater grace. What is, what is greater than? It's greater, what's, what is the grace greater than? It's greater than all the wickedness sown up in the natural body. Yahweh's grace is greater than all that you can do wrong. It's greater than the gates of hell and it's greater than the grip of the adversary. Yahweh's grace is unstoppable, all-powerful, and it's able to save to the uttermost. It doesn't matter what kind of filthy rag you are. This is the reason that Scripture says Elohim resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now that's in the Bible. That, that verse is in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34, that's what it says. But look at it carefully. Notice it doesn't say he gives grace to the proud, but he gives it to the humble. It doesn't say Yahweh gives grace to the proud, he gives it to the humble. He says he resists the proud. But to the one that is broken... He has mercy. The one that cries out, he has mercy. To the one that falls on his face and begs his forgiveness, he hears and he restores. Beautiful saving grace for the humble. 
So to sum up these verses, 1 through 6, James says, Are you in conflict with yourself and with others? Are you in love with the world and therefore you're an enemy with Yahweh? If you are, there's hope. James says to do this. Let's look at verses 7 through 10. I'm not going to get in them. I don't want to cover them in detail, but I want to read them to you. I believe that this right here is an invitation to salvation. This is an invitation from James. And he's saying, look, you want to be one of Yahweh's children? Here it goes. Verses 7, it says, Therefore submit to Yahweh, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to the Almighty, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before Yahweh, and he will exalt you. That's an invitation to salvation. That's what that is. See, the passage that James quotes from in, Pro- quotes from in Proverbs 3 and verse 34 is what Yahweh requires of his people. He requires them to be humble, to be broken, to have a contrite heart, a broken spirit. He gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. This is a recipe for salvation. He says, humble yourself and I'll hear you. Ask for the humble heart and I will answer. Seek me first and I'll give you wisdom, but when you come with a selfish attitude, I'm going to resist you. I will turn my ear from you and watch you fall by the wayside. So brothers and sisters, I urge you to examine yourself once again with another test from James. A friend of the world is an enemy of Yahweh, but greater grace is given to the humble. I hope you'll meditate on verses 7 through 10 until I teach again. These verses are what it takes to stop being an enemy of Yahweh. These verses teach you what will bring you that all-sufficient, precious grace, the grace that, that doesn't run out. Yahweh's got, Yahweh's got grace, and the grace that He gives you is, is all-powerful. It's not lacking in anything. It's able to save the most wicked if wicked of all men. So let's resist the devil, draw near to Yahweh, cleanse our hands, and purify our hearts so that we may be heard by Yahweh, and He'll bless us, forgive us, and then restore us. Yahweh, Father, I thank you for this day and thank you for your blessings, Father. I thank you for the test that you've laid out for us here in the book of James. And Father, I just pray that we'll apply the verses that we read and what we understand. I pray that, that you'll uh, apply them to our hearts and that we'll, we'll look at ourselves. We'll look into the perfect law of liberty. We'll examine our lives and see where we're at and where we fall short. And Father, I pray that we'll kneel at the bottom of a bloodstained cross and we'll cry out to you and beg the mercy that we need, Father. I pray that we'll look at your Son as He's as He's raised up and know that He's our saving grace. Father, we love you. We ask all these things in your holy Son's name. Amen.